Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. My name is Matt Halstead, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, in this episode, we continue our discussion with philosopher Beryl Dove Lerner about his new book, Human Divine Interactions in the Hebrew Scriptures, Covenants and Cross Purposes. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to part one of this this discussion, go ahead and hit pause here and then go listen to that because that sets the context for this episode. Um, It was a long conversation, a little over two hours, so I just cut it down the middle and um, we're just going to dive right back in, pick up where we left off from the last episode. Okay, well, without further ado, let's jump into today's discussion, part two with Beryl Dove Lerner. So let's take everything you said here and put it in something concrete, namely the story of Job. Um, Right. Assuming (laughs) your sort of framework here about the different moral systems and so forth, was it, you know, was it right for Job to question God and the ways of God? And did God want Job to question the ways of God? And um, how, how would you... It, it, given the given God's doing this thing over here and Job's dealing with this thing over here, um, does and if there's a disjunction between the moral system, God's moral system, and Job's moral system, um, did God, you know, did God um, applaud Job for doing the sorts of things that he was doing, as opposed to the pious friends who defended God? Well, obviously, you know, in the end of the in the end of the book. God says that Job did better than, spoke better than his friends did. So that sort of is a giveaway. And I also, you know, I have to, I I have to be easy on Job because he, 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 he didn't read my book. (laughs) So I don't know that he had the, the correct philosophical framework to understand his predicament. But he had a he had a but Job is in a, in a in a very special predicament because it doesn't seem that he has any kind of uh, covenantal relationship with God that we know of beyond something very general I don't know coming from the Noah's covenant or something but he certainly he doesn't seem to be an Israelite and uh, yeah so. I think it's okay for him to complain that certainly as far as he's concerned, things look unfair. And I'll just, I know, spoiler alert, I will remind you and, and tell our listeners that I don't think that God gave Job the real answer anyway, right? God spoke to him from the whirlwind but that wasn't really what was going on you know god dazzled him with uh, with his na- with his with with his uh creation and his knowledge of creation and all that and his strength and but as we know from the first chapters of job were there two chapters of the framework yeah the prologue yeah. yeah 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 the prologue in heaven like it like in faust and the prologue in heaven so uh and Job is we not privy to those that. conversations, is he? What? Job is not privy to those conversations. No, Job at is all. not privy to those conversations. So maybe I should let me say this clearly. Sure. What my what I what I did with the book is I made very short shrift of it. I said I've no I, I'm not going to even trouble myself with all the long speeches in the middle, because everybody got everything wrong anyway. <laughs> And it's a very interesting question. What is the point of spending so many chapters of canonical scripture on speeches by people who, according to the book itself, according to, to God's voice in the book, were getting everything wrong anyway? So what, what, what are you supposed to do with those chapters? You know, here is, here is divinely, a divinely inspired record of people talking at length, getting their theology wrong. Okay, fine. Which is fascinating so, because that's yeah. part of the story of Job, though, right? Where right. Getting the, the, the wrong, the bad theology 
somehow plays a role in the larger narrative. Anyway. Right. And yeah. and there could be that there's some kind of dialectic going on there that like yeah. with Wittgenstein in the end of the Tractatus, you throw it away in the end that you realize it was all nonsense, but following their arguments may have helped prepare you mm. to to get to where you have to. Maybe, but I didn't go into anything like that. Sure, I sure, just yeah. said that God in the end um appears to Job as this great master of nature and very powerful, and Job is sort of subdued. And okay, somehow it had that psychological effect on him, or else he, you know, he just sort of gave up and understood that this is beyond him. But what was really going on was what Job didn't know about, which was in the prologue, where God is not saying, oh, look at me, creator of nature, and, you know, what are you human beings uh, when I have the Leviathan and all this big stuff? Instead, God and uh, and Satan are talking about, ooh, Job, wow, look at that guy. Is he really that pious? That's what interests God. Pious human beings, good human beings. That's that's what impresses him about about the world. He's it's uh, he's 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 a great humanist as far as the value of of human beings and their activities, but he doesn't play with them according to, to human rules, and so he can put Job into this terrible situation that no human being would ever have a right to put another human being into that kind of situation, right? But um, you know, God wants to have this instantiation of piety and goodness in the world, and he's going to set up things for Job to be able to do it, of standing, of, of, of dealing with all this suffering. And, that's, and he gets his divine, he, he wins the bet with Satan. Yes, Job is up to snuff. The world is, is a little bit worthier. That's mm -hmm. what I want. So, so the reason I, I was bringing up the the story yeah. of Job is in, in in view of your larger idea that that, that there's a disjunction between right. divine morality and human moral systems. It is interesting, and I think you raise this in the book, is to say that you know God wants humans to, and this is your view. And correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but okay, yeah. God God wants humans to argue back against him simply because he wants them to own up to their human moral systems even when they're at cross purposes with the divine moral system is that what you're saying there are there are situations where it's certainly appropriate for human beings to do that okay and having said that 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 it's that that it's morally appropriate for them to challenge god then i guess in you know in terms of god being interested in people being morally appropriate then yeah i guess god is you know god is happy with with human beings challenging him at you know at some junctures i de i definitely think that there's room i mean i i mean if you read the psalms there's lots of questions to god right um the prophets to you know always asking god questions and so i i'm very much uh, attracted to the idea that it's appropriate to argue against God. It's just interesting to me. I've never thought of it the way you have framed it. That within your framework, you that your framework seems to make sense of. It offers one theory as to why arguing with God is appropriate because God wants humans to be committed to their human moral systems, and sometimes that's at cross purposes with His that He's committed to. Um, and again, I, I don't think I'm really uncomfortable. There's just something about it, and forgive me, I, I keep going with this. Something yeah, uncomfortable about this disjunction that we're talking about. Right, I'll give you an example that, is, that, yeah, that, was, in the, that was in the book. Um, that you know, there's there's a law in uh, I don't know where it appears. Uh, maybe in Deuteronomy. I don't know if it's in Deuteronomy or Exodus. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's a, a law about setting up a fence around your rooftop because people in the Middle East have flat roofs. Oh, I remember that part. Yeah, 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 that yeah. people yeah. could fall yeah. off. And so mm -hmm. it warns you to set up this, this uh, fence around your rooftop because uh, I forgot how it goes exactly, that lest the faller fall from it. And then the classical Jewish uh, interpretation of it is there are people we're supposed to fall from roofs. 
God, this, wants, this is God the wants them. Is it the or, or uh, the rabbis were saying this, right? Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there are people, why, why does it say, lest the faller? Who are the, what, what is a faller? A guy's going to fall from it. What, he's a faller? You know, is that part of his essence? And they said, no, this is somebody who really, he he's supposed to fall. That's part of God's plan. He's supposed to fall. Maybe it's a, it's a divine punishment that hmm. he should fall. But not not on your watch. And so there's even you're even commanded to make sure that that you will not be an instrument of divine punishment. Hmm. Let him find some place. Let him find some way else uh, where else to fall off. You're not going to fall off of my roof, even if God wants you to. And you may recall that's that's one of the points that I do like in the book <laughs> that I. I argue that human beings have no business trying to enforce or even, you know, standing by while divine punishment takes place. There are punishments which within biblical law, you know, if you have a human court is set up according to biblical law and it's and it's a human institution and human beings are supposed to be meeting out punishment fine but even even if i were to be aware that there's somebody who's supposed to suffer because of you know this was a divine punishment god's plan for him i argue that that's god's problem I'm going to do my thing and I am going to, you know, if this guy is sick and you're saying, oh, he's sick because of, because of the, the divine punishment, I'm going to try to cure him. I'll take care of him. Yeah, God, you work on, on keeping him sick. I'll, I'll work on keeping him well. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Actually, uh, I presented something in my kibbutz along these lines. There's something that wasn't in the book. Uh, it's very strange in the story of the Exodus that Moses is constantly complaining to God that he won't be able to convince Pharaoh because he's he's not he's slow of speech or however I forgot how it's translated in English. Kavod, there's a heaviness of speech. Right, heaviness, yeah, yeah. kavod. Yeah, yeah. So it's very strange because yeah. Moses has already been told Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Hmm. So if you know that Pharaoh's going to kind of listen to you, why is Moses constantly saying, you know, well, my guy, he's not going to listen to me. I don't know how to talk. Find somebody who can talk, somebody you'll listen to. It's, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. Of course, if God, God already told him that Pharaoh won't listen anyway, you could bring, you know, like, to bring a combination of Martin Luther King and Winston Churchill there and with, you know, the greatest rhetoric in the world, and it wouldn't work anyway. God said, Pharaoh's not going to listen. Hmm. So my interpretation of that was that you can see in other passages in the story of the Exodus, God is interested, he says explicitly, God is interested in drawing out this process in and Pharaoh not listening so that he'll be able to have many plagues and work all these wonders in Egypt so that the Egyptians will recognize him as God. Hmm. All right, that's God's, that's God's plan in the Exodus. At the same time, you have Moses who appears from the beginning of his, you know, from the moment he appears in, in, in Exodus, he is worried about the Israelites. They are suffering under slavery. Now, with all due respect to God hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and showing off with the 10 plagues, it doesn't help the Israelites. They're still slaves. Hmm. So Moses' interest in this whole story is to end the slavery and send them out of Egypt. And God is saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to take my time here. So Moses is saying, Wait a second. You want me to participate in this business? Let me try. Let me have some chance of doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm trying. I'm really trying. I, I want to convince him in the first meeting to let us out. Forget your plagues. 
So I have a problem that, I, that, that I'm not a good speaker because I really see my job here is to get the Israelites out of slavery as soon as possible, even though you have all your big historical issues you want to go into. And the interesting thing is he has a, a basis in the story to think that he might affect things because in his first meeting with God at the burning bush, God tells him that the Israelites will listen to him when he, he brings them the, the message of redemption. And in the beginning, they do. But then Pharaoh sets even harder work upon them, and it breaks their spirit, and they don't believe him anymore. So the situation is kind of fluid. God said the Israelites would believe him. Yeah, for a while, not so fast. And, you know, dealing with human beings here. And, uh, okay, so maybe there's some wiggle room also with Pharaoh. Get him, break him down a little bit before we get through all 10 plagues or something and, and get these guys out of, uh, out of slavery a bit earlier. So that's so an example of the wills at cross purposes in a sense. The, the wills plan. at cross purposes, different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I think, you know, it's like Moses is, what Moses is trying to do is perfectly legitimate. And actually, exegetically, you need something like that. Otherwise, it's completely, unless you're going to do biblical criticism, you know, like source criticism or something. Mm -hmm. Why is Moses constantly complaining that, that Pharaoh won't listen to him if God already promised that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to him? Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think so. I so, so what's interesting? I think we're just like the the, the uh, exegetical tradition that I'm used to is um, trying to. Well, let me let me just back up. There's something attractive, like I said, about developing a framework such that humans can truly be human, pushing back with their questions against. I hate to say against God, but but just asking God the tough questions. And there, are, and I do think that Christians need to develop a framework where they can make better sense of those times where God and humans are interacting such that the human interaction affects God. I, you know, I, and I'm not like an open theist or anything of that sort. I, I hold to classical theism, you know, but, um, uh, but I, I still think, I, I still think what we need to leave room for the eff efficacy of prayer and things like that. So there's all these, so I'm very deeply interested in these frameworks. What's interesting though, is my exegetical tradition has always been, it seems and this is why I love this conversation is because you're you're bringing my assumptions to the forefront here. Um, <laughs> my my exegetical traditions have always been okay. It's not so much let let's understand the cross purposes going on here. Let's you know let's be okay with some of this tension. However, my tradition has always said let's go back and level the playing field here. Let's make sense of Pharaoh's hardening of heart, not to be actually as deterministic as we might think it is, or let's go back to Job. Um, maybe let's develop a framework to make sense of the prologue where God is not using Job as a pawn, you know, like God's not, you know, using him as a, like just a little player on a chessboard. There may be something else going on and that absolves God from having a wholly other ethical moral system, perhaps. And I'm thinking specifically of, are you, well, are you familiar with Eleanor Stump's book wandering in darkness and she has this whole chapter on job what, what, what? is there is there a chance that she's listening i, I don't know no. <laughs> yeah because oh, i yeah. will admit i i i i've had i've met her at conferences yeah a bit yeah. With a facebook friend and i haven't read the book oh okay gotcha yeah i, I would love for I, you to talks about it i know it's supposed to be a great book and it's fascinating and i admit yeah. i have not read it no that's okay that's quite okay well Honestly, I, I just I tell everybody this, and I think somebody else has mentioned this before. Nonetheless, it is true. The book is worth it's kind of pricey, but the whole book is worth just the Job chapter. <laughs> it's really interesting. She's got an interesting take on Job and Samson and all that. But I think what she's done is like she's sort of she's sort of showing God out to be, if I remember correctly, Eleanor, please forgive me if I'm misconstruing. But she's she's trying to show that actually God's not like using him up a, as a pawn like like satan's not saying hey i'm really looking for someone to like torture and god's like oh dude i have an idea Here, here's this guy he's like super blameless you know and he's like the perfect candidate for your for your uh sick little um game and so she recasts the whole thing to say actually that's not what's going on. there's more things going on in the prologue i mean in, in this conversation 
And then Greg Boyd actually has an interesting take on this. I kind of, anyway, basically, God is sort of, you know, like God is wanting Satan for whatever reason. This is Eleanor, for whatever reason to maybe not convert per se, but but to assess his ways. You know, he's wandering on the earth. You know, it's this wandering idea and. Um, and he needs to take stock of his evil ways. And what better way to do that than to look at the most blameless man on the earth? Maybe that'll convict Satan. And Eleanor says, okay, maybe Satan's not going to, you know, convert, you know, but maybe it's still in God's interest to get him to be less evil. Um, and, and, and so God's not, the point is God's not offering Job up as a pawn. He's offering Job up as an example. And through the dialogue, the Satan is, you know, he has to, battle against that well job's not actually that blameless you know and here's here's what's going on and greg boyd comes in and says um you know basically satan accuses god and job of injustice you know god's purchasing worship from job he uses his omnipotence and his power to just purchase worship and so what god cannot do in that situation is he can't say be gone satan because then satan wins the argument you know oh see there you go again god you're just using your power to get your way so at this point, God has to allow Job to go through these trials. But the point in all that is to say that maybe Job is not a pawn, you know, in, in the sense that I've always grown up hearing it. But my larger point is to say, maybe it's just my exegetical tradition, is to go back to those stories and figure out ways to alleviate the tension, you know, and to make it more palpable to the human ethical understanding. But and, and whether that way is right or wrong, it's just, I'm just, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a thing. But what you have done here, and again, I, I, this is why I think I enjoyed your book. One of the many reasons is because it's drawing my assumptions out and to say, okay, but what you're wanting to do is just say, no, there's tension, go with the tension. And here's a framework for how to make sense of the tension. I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that? Yeah, I, w- I would say okay. two things to what you said. One, one yeah, thing is, do. um, I mean, the Satan in in mm-hmm. you know Hebrew Bible just not right. You know, he he doesn't have as much uh, metaphysical baggage for me. Sure, yeah, he and says, see, that's my you know, tradition he, is to read him as right. the devil. You know, you know, yeah. he's just uh, this kind of uh, angel or whatever whose job is to be a kind of prosecutor, mm-hmm. but sure. you know, completely under divine control as much as as any uh, angelic being and you know and who knows what it's even supposed to be you know it's just some way of of representing a certain dialectic of ideas you know that's the thing with the story of job i think i mentioned it that it's one of the books because it's because it doesn't take place in a covenantal framework Mm-hmm. So there's no problem like for somebody like Maimonides to say, yeah, you know, it's probably just a story. Right. So um, as for the question of making everything work out, the problem is that I don't see that in the world. Hmm. You know, if you want to have if you want to have a way of reading scripture. Which fits with. Um, what you see in reality. I mean, we don't have all that. We don't have any miraculous intervention any day, you know, these days in reality. So that though, that part of it isn't so applicable. But you're talking about the modern world, by the way, like right, the modern you world, you don't the think real world, mirac- okay, the world okay. whatever at, at any stage in history. There's a lot of really bad stuff going on. It's a mess. It's always a mix of dark darkness and light. And um, I sort of feel like explanations that try to make it all okay, Hmm. they just, you know, uh, an an explanation that would make everything that happens in the Bible okay, you know, and, and fine and not bother me, would not have much application to existence because existence isn't that way. Existence is full of things that aren't okay. Hmm. 
or, or mysterious like we just don't know like why in the world they're does that happen well yep. yeah they're mysterious and certainly as far as i'm concerned <laughs> they're not okay <laughs> sure oh yeah for sure yeah 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 i mean there's yeah. all this all is really you know i think there's a lot of really good stuff going on in the world it doesn't get sure you know you you never hear you never turn on the news at night and you hear about some couple who've been trying to have a baby for the past past 15 years and and finally the woman has gotten yep. pregnant Right. And all these wonderful things that are happening, you know, that maybe would have been better if she would have gone, you know, and they have all these people who who have children right away and they have no problem and things are going well for them and great things are happening in the world. And, you know, and, you know, so that's never reported on, but they are a lot of really bad, inexplicable things, you know, like take even the case of Job. I don't remember if I mentioned it in the book about the case of Job. Wow, that really bothers me because at the point when I was writing, I thought this was a great point. Maybe I should write a whole article about it if I didn't put it in the book. Of all of the things that that, that Satan does to Job, you notice there's one thing he doesn't do to him. He doesn't make him become psychotic. Because if he became mentally ill, what kind of wonderful speeches would he be able to give? But and and how would he argue with his friends if 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 he was schizophrenic and it affected his cognitive abilities? And then you wouldn't be able to have the book of Job. But you know what? There are a lot of people. Who are, who are schizophrenic, and it affects and it affects their ability to reason. And they and they can't make nice speeches like Job can. So in that sense, the book is artificial. It doesn't go the whole way. You, you there's something oh, there's some things that happen in this world that's really hard to explain. What in the what was that good for? You know, they say God only does stuff to you that, that you can deal with. Oh, yeah. right. Alzheimer. Yeah. yeah. I don't like Christian. I don't, I don't like There's the, the, so the many platitudes. Yeah. The what? platitudes are just, they can go to the trash can as far as I'm so concerned. That's why I think, yeah, you know, right the now. world, the world yeah. is, there are wonderful things going on. There are bad things. Sure. I constantly see. There's a Hebrew expression for this about, you know, darkness and light mixed together. So that a story about how everything is okay, you know, sort of troubles me. I know mm -hmm. that, you know, within Jewish tradition, of course, there are people who go who, who go for that, that everything is for the best. And there's some uh, among some Hasidic masters, they're very, very extreme metaphysical um, you know uh, Sam Liebens? I don't think so. Uh -uh. Sam Liebens, he's a, he's a uh, he's a philosopher at Haifa University. He's very mm -hmm. involved in philosophy of religion, and he and he wrote a long book, something like that, the principles of Jewish philosophy. I forgot what it's called. Put out by Cambridge, and he has this really complicated metaphysical way to make everything work out in 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 this like science fiction way that. In the end of time, God will have caused the world to have world history to, to have um, taken place in the best possible way. Hmm. And our history... Like a Leib Leib Leibniz sort of approach to... Right, and our yeah. history hmm. of our world with the suffering involved will have ceased to have ever have been. And instead... There will have been, because a, a God beyond the kind of temporality we're used to, he can, re he can replace the history. There will be an alternative in the end hmm. of days. There will be an alternative positive history. All the suffering that you see will not, will suddenly, we will discover it never happened. Oh, that's interesting. So that's it, like, it, yeah. That, ra that raises you know, a lot of interesting questions, too, in terms of like human conscious continuity and our memories yeah. and yeah that's, inter so that's if, interesting so yeah. if you want things to yeah. work out you know i'm just saying in judaism he he sees this as as an, as uh i think it's a little a bit off but he sees this as an extension of certain uh 
ideas and certain radical 19th mm. century Hasidic thinkers. In any case, uh, so yeah, in Judaism, we also have people who, who want everything to work out mm-hmm. perfectly. But the world that I see isn't like that. And, and a religion that can't deal with that isn't dealing with the world. Hey, friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of Scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry, and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of Scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff, and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. And I think, oh, that, that's really interesting. Like, I think, let me say this too, because... Anybody who knows me knows two things about me. One, I have a very hopeful eschatology. I think it all works out in the end. Like I said, I'm, I'm a, I'm a confessional Christian. I, I go to church every Sunday. I take the Eucharist. Like I believe, right. the ending will be good. Um, the second, so people know that about me. Number two, the other thing they know about me is I'm pretty cynical about a lot of things. <laughs> so I, I, and I hate platitudes. Like if there's one thing that I hate about my little section of the the tradition i suppose you say is just the propensity to give platitudes in really bad situations and i'm just like be quiet like it's better for you just not to even talk you know what i mean so i just don't i don't like that and so there's an element so as i hear as i hear you talk there's a there's so much where i'm like no no we have to fight for the hopefulness you know we have to fight for our um uh our hope in that sense and i'm yeah, I you know I really I was really inspired by Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, uh, his little book, and I I don't know there's just something about that that really really spoke to me. But the second thing here is you know all the hopefulness there and how I I feel like I've worked it all out. There's a second thing about it. It's like okay, Matt Halstead probably needs to definitely definitely needs to be modest as we were talking earlier about modest hermeneutical or interpretive modesty and stuff is because. What you've just said in terms of like the world really is evil, and I feel like a lot of apologists. Yeah, I, I don't think. Well, oh, go ahead. The world yeah, so. is not evil. Oh, okay, okay, go ahead. The world yeah, sorry. is a mixed up place. Mixed up. Okay, my apologies. That that's your. Yeah. So you're saying your view is it's not like an, it's not evil. Perhaps it's broken. Would you say it's broken? There's good stuff and there's bad stuff, and okay. it's, and you know, and things are messed up. But but you know, I. I have to say, sort of theologically, I come to this from a Jewish position, which is, I think, less perfectionist. That, that for instance, you know, people, you you don't need some kind of divine intervention, um, you know, in, in order for you to be able to be good enough to approach God kind of thing. You know, it's okay. like, you don't, you know, there's not that need for grace. It's like, it's, I know people who are doing like really amazing things. I mean, I have a, my neighbor who lives over there, like, so he's, he was a volunteer ambulance driver. We have a lot of volunteer services like that in Israel. Mm-hmm. And there was one point where he heard that, that they were missing nursing staff in the in the local hospital, and he just volunteered to do a night shift once mm-hmm. a week in the ER. Wow! Yeah. So, with all due respect to original sin, or you know, or you know, we're all fallen, or we're all fractured or imperfect, or whatever. That's 
that's a pretty good thing, you know? And yeah, and so I know lots of lots of people who do like really, really good things. Sure. Yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. You know, and so from my Jewish point of view, I say that's pretty good. You know, it's like there's some really, really good things in the world. And I'm not going to say, oh, you know, we're in a fallen world and everything is tainted with sin. Oh, there's some really people doing some really good things around here. So, uh, you know, I maybe a little bit of a different way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think we would approach that topic differently for sure. But I, like, I, but I'm totally fine with saying like, oh, that those are like really good things that people do. <laughs> like, I, I, you, I mean, I would not want to live in a world where people couldn't say those sorts of things, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, let, I, I want to say too, just for the listeners, um, especially when it comes to the problem of evil kind of stuff, like, I do want to just say to you, Beryl, like validate this idea of like, no, we have to come to terms with the world. It's, you know, whether you, you would cast it in different terms than I would. It's like, there, there is there's some bad things in the world that we need to reckon with. Like we don't need to just jump to making things so simple in order for them to be happy, I guess in the end. And so, and and, and I want to say this to the listeners that they may not know is before we started like recording, you and I were just talking and you're actually, I mean, right now you're in a place in the world where you're thinking about missiles being launched, you know, uh, toward, um, homes like where you live and and so this whole idea of coming to terms with reality again however we want to cast all this or frame it um like we need to be we need to be fully aware that there are bad things that are happening and so you know we need and and, and there are legitimate questions as to why is this happening right now to me to my neighbors to my family i don't, I don't know i just want to bring that out and just yeah i i'm i'll tell you what my personal sure yeah my personal take on the problem of evil is okay yeah go ahead my problem of evil is trying to avoid doing bad things mm. you know and the stuff that's maybe up to god and he's doing what he's doing is really not my problem mm. is his problem of evil I don't like it, and I may, you know, I can complain about it. I'd like things to work in a different way, but sure. but as far as you know, what I really have to worry about, I have to worry about my problem of evil, hmm. and how much you know. What kind of every, yeah? You know, that's a really everybody, good everybody yeah. knows that bad stuff happens in the world. Come on, yeah, you know, yeah. You know that's that's obvious. Everybody knows that. So deal deal with it. Now try now you try to be good. Try to, you know, mm. try to try to avoid evil. And and why should I rack my brains over <clears throat> trying to figure out uh what God is up to? God, he's first of all, I won't figure it out. Secondly, it's his, it's really his problem. Mm. <laughs> I can complain to him, but it's his problem. Yeah. No. Man, this is this is okay. Here's the problem with this whole conversation that I'm having with you. I want to talk to you for like 20 more hours. All right, <laughs> because we don't have that much time. I get that because I I want to have another. We can have another segment. Absolutely, okay. because I feel like we are in different conceptual worlds. Uh, you know, as a Christian myself, as a Jew yourself, like we're we're just going to approach some of these questions differently. But there's so much about what you're saying where I'm like man, I, I really want to explore that more. But anyway, anyway, I, I just want to say like, I know the listeners are saying, I want to hear more of what Beryl means by that. And I, I want to know what Matt <laughs> thinks about that. But I just want to say to the listeners, like, we just don't have time to answer all the questions. I just enjoy the dialogue. But, but if I may, I, I want to be super respectful of your time because I think I've kept you yeah, twice as I, long as I initially said. <laughs> so I, am, um, I, am, I don't, until my voice goes out, I'm fine. Okay, good. Well, let me, if, if I may, let me ask you one or two more questions, because there's one thing I want to talk about in your book. And I just toss it out there and let you run with it. Um, but you have a chapter called The Covenant of the Pieces and its Epistemological Implications for oh, Biblical yeah. Historiography. Yeah. And you have a section here where you bring the covenant with Abraham to bear upon the question of the existence of God. And it was interesting how you cast that because um, because you 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 mention many scholars, and I've heard many Christian scholars talk about the Abrahamic covenant as you know you know when the animals are split in two and you know, the, the God walks in between. 
that this is an unconditional covenant. And, and then you, what you do though, is you say, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's unconditional. However, we need to follow it out to its proper conclusions that nobody seems to do. Can you give us, can you, can you just give us the listeners a taste of your view on that? And how does it work out into the question of the existence of God? Yeah. For those who know, and I assume that people know the, the covenant of the pieces, where, where God, um, well, there's a whole story there. First, Abraham is, is upset. He doesn't have any kids. And uh, God says that he will, that he will. And uh, Abraham believes him. And then there's like a world famous verse, the phrase uh, that he thought him, thought him justified, thought him just, thought him something for this. And you can have justification through faith if you, depending on who, who you apply that uh, that pronoun that he to is it is it Abraham thinking about God or God thinking about Abraham? Not at all clear from the Hebrew. In any case, and then uh, when when God promises that they will get the land of Canaan, Abraham is not so sure about it, and and uh, God tells him to take various animals, cut them in half, and then some kind of uh, fiery apparition uh, moves between the pieces. And that's how the a covenant about, well, I'd say more about it, but for our purpose, the covenant of getting of getting the land of, of Canaan and all of these things that will happen to, to Abraham's progeny, that is how it is promised. And we know from I think in from Jeremiah and also from uh, <clears throat> from other Near East ancient Near Eastern texts that there's a way of performing a covenant where you cut animals into pieces and uh, actually the more subservient person party walks between them with the idea that if they do not keep their part of the covenant let them be torn to pieces like these animals and then. It is this fiery apparition, which everybody seems to think represents God, that walks between the pieces. And so it does indeed seem this is a one-way covenant. Abraham is not required to do anything. It's only God promising progeny and land. And it's God walking between the pieces. And it's God saying, if I don't do this, may I be torn into pieces. Like these animals, and so yeah, and 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 what I said about that was that it means that God's presence in human history will be in terms of this covenant. That God is that 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 God is showing it will show Himself in human history through fulfilling this covenant covenant to Abraham, and in fact. As far as human beings are concerned, if he does not fulfill the covenant, he will be torn to pieces. He will cease to exist. Because if there was a God, he was supposed to keep a covenant and he and the covenant wasn't kept. And this is what we find afterwards. You know, Moses always telling uh, God in the in the wilderness when when God wants to uh get rid of the Israelites and punish them, Moses says, Oh, what will people think? You know, you you had these covenants, and uh, and I think all, here actually in Psalms, there's an idea of people asking, "Where is your God?" When they see they made when they see when when they see the the blood of your the uh, the, the the blood of your servants uh, uh, poured out. So, you know, there's this idea, yeah, it's a problem for people thinking of God as existing if this covenant isn't kept. And that's why it's it's described in that way. And that, that was one of my philosophical things I brought in from the philosophical literature. Nietzsche talking about the death of God. Of course, he's not talking about a metaphysical death of God. He's talking about God as a living idea force in human society. 
And with secularism, God does not exist for human society. And that's what will happen if God does not keep the covenant. That's how he will be torn apart and not exist. As far as humanity is concerned, not at a metaphysical level. Anyway, yeah, that's what I said, right? Yeah, that, that was interesting because, I mean, and I think I think you drew out an interesting um, conclusion there with respect to Yahweh's claim to be... Um, you know, the one true God, like, like that he's putting his godness at risk, I guess you can say. Now, sure. I know, I know a lot of people would say, dad, not God, you know, God knows all things and he's not like risking anything. But I mean, in terms of like a human viewpoint is that God is putting everything at stake here such sure. that if he doesn't follow through with the plan, then he, he's, he's saying, you know, I guess the conclusion would be he's not God. And that's what you mean by uh, the yeah. Existence of God there. yeah okay right and and that's as i mentioned this is moses is always pulling this card on god you know yeah that was an interesting link there get too. rid of the israelites what will people say mm -hmm. right right yeah it's interesting and i think this is just the sort of thing that listeners can expect from reading your book is that you're going to draw out these sorts of um conclusions and these takes and whatever and and say this is where this, you know, in your view leads. And then this is the sort of philosophical ramifications that we deal with. And, and actually the whole covenant idea becomes an epistemological moment where, um, you know, this is the way we know, this is the way we know what sort of God we're worshiping and who we're following into the desert and into the promised land. Um, so yeah, very fascinating in that respect. Well, let, let me follow up with just one last question, not so much about the book, but just, um, let us know what other projects are you working on? Do you have any irons in the fire that, what can we expect from you in the future? Oh, your writing. <laughs> well, you know what they say about um uh when when the cannons roar, the uh what are they called? The muses are silent when the cannons roar or something like that. So I'm actually now supposed to be in a half-year sabbatical to write. And I was actually supposed to spend some time at Duke. Hmm. But then, you know, what happened happened on October 7th, and I have uh, two, two of my sons were called up for, for uh, reserve duty in the war, and uh, my daughter came over with her family to get away from the missiles because uh, she doesn't have a, a, a bomb-proof room in, in her uh, apartment, and, she's, mm -hmm. and they're getting a lot of missiles over there. So all this stuff was going on, and forget it, I didn't go to Duke. And I tried to write, and <laughs> but what I would like, what I thought I was going to write about, I actually have one article at Biblica, which I'm waiting to hear something about, which is a very particular thing about uh, the way months are referred to in the Book of Esther, that hmm. they're referred to both both by their Babylonian name and by their number, and I and I say that the that the numbered months are uh, allude to the Exodus because it's because that that was the, the the month of the Exodus was the first month. You know, it says this will be the first month for you, mm -hmm. and so I have some kind of ideological interpretation of what happens there. You know, what is it signaling when it uses different. Uh, different modes of uh of formulating dates i have i mean i i can tell you i had other things i thought i was going to write maybe i'll write them when when my mind clears something about uh, kohelet ecclesiastes where i find two things very interesting about it one thing is i think that maybe uh, ecclesiastes is supposed to be dead uh, what do you mean by that? I mean he's dead. Oh, okay. He is this, the, he is speaking. You know, it's it's a it's a literary work, mm -hmm. not really in a covenantal framework, so it can be sort of postmodern or something. And uh, I think that maybe, um, Ecclesi Kohelet Ecclesiastes is dead or thinks he's dead. And the tip off for this is that in the the verse where he says. I was a king in Jerusalem. Hmm. How could you have been a king? That's a job that 
there's only one way to stop being a king. He didn't ab and, abdicate. Uh, you, uh, you, you don't have abdications. In, yeah. <laughs> uh, you die. And um, by the end of the book, there's, there's a description of a death scene, which is interesting he, and he talks about what the dead know and what they don't know and there's a kind of a paradox there the dead don't know anything how would you know that without being dead if he's you know he seems to be very empiricist everything is is mm. experiential for him and he's talking as if he has an experience of death perhaps but but then he wouldn't know anything there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. And there's another em empirical sort of empiricist problem that I have with him that, that also relates to John Stuart Mill, hmm. that uh, in, towards the beginning where he's doing these experiments in life, and he says he is going to have a wild time, but he's going to hold on to his wisdom at the same time. He will have both, uh, I think it's Hololut, he'll have whatever. This wild time, and and they also hold on to wisdom, hmm. and like that's sort of what you would need in order to be doing this real time philosophical analysis of uh, all right, here I am, I am now living a wild life, and I'm doing <laughs> phenomenological analysis of the quality of living a wild life, so that I can compare it to the life of wisdom. But as, as critics of John Stuart Mill pointed out, if you are holding on to wisdom, you're not really having much of a wild life. You're not, you're not having the real experience mm. of, you know, uh, what happens in, Las, in Vegas stays in Vegas. If you are also maintaining a, a, this, this this kind of philosophical uh, conscience to keep track of what's going on and try to understand it. So he's sort of, he's confused. Hmm. He thinks that he's succeeding in this. And perhaps actually afterwards, you see, what does he actually do? He, he starts all these huge building programs. That's having a wild and crazy time. <laughs> it's like, what what's going on in this text? So he thinks that he's, he thinks that 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 he has experimented in in uh, you know in seeing if if having a wild and crazy time is the good life, and he ends up being this super king, making gardens and building stuff and whatever. And what what does that have to do with anyway? So I, I want hmm. to look into that. I have I have a lot of. Uh, I have an idea I'd like to write about. Uh, what would it mean for it for the Jewish people to continue to exist? What what does that mean for people to continue to exist? And sort of take take ideas from the literature of uh, personal identity and apply them to a group. I thought that, and you kind of touched on some of that uh, with the slavery and the Exodus and that whole section right. about human autonomy and and how that factors into one's relationship with time which was really oh, interesting yeah that was yeah. so i have all these yeah. ideas all these wonderful things i thought i was going to write about but like i sort of gave up and i'm writing a couple book reviews right now because yeah. that i can sort of bring myself to do and the the war has has wound down a little bit and it's not like you know my usual schedule for the past few months is you wake up in the morning and that you know check the phone to see, you know, who who was killed in battle. Do I know this person? You know, because, every, you know, it's a small country. Everybody knows everybody. It's not like in America where, you know, those guys volunteer for the army. Instead, it's like, yeah, it's like eh. everybody's out there. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, all these people mm -hmm. like I've. So, so it's, you know, very, it's a, I mean, and I will say, I know that, I know that in Gaza, there's terrible suffering. I'm aware of that. You know, I know it's like, wow, amazingly bad situation there. And I think there are reasons yeah. that, that, that I don't want to get political, but that this is an instance of urban warfare under the worst possible conditions. 
uh, people not being able to get out of the way. Egypt won't let people cross the border and the whole place is, uh, is there's a military infrastructure built under everything. And it's, it's just the worst possible situation to do this terrible thing, which is called modern urban warfare. So uh, in any event, yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite uh, stressful, and it and it uh, makes it difficult to work. Yeah, believe it or not. No, I. This is <laughs> this is the problem. Like I, I'm I've never been in war. I've never been in a land where there is war. Like I'm, if I had born, been born, I guess a hundred and something fifty years ago in my own country, we we've had war in this country, you know. But I, and, and I don't, yeah, this is a whole nother conversation, but just, just, I want, if I could tell, I hope everybody, well, I know not everybody's listening to this, but like, I, I don't know what to do. And so I just pray, you know what I mean? And, um, well, yeah, I mean, there's those a whole complicated situation. I don't want to no, go no. into politics. No, I'll just no, say no. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The experience was amazing because, you know, October 7th was a holiday, Simchat Torah. Yeah. And I'm this kibbutz, it's a religious kibbutz. So everybody's in the synagogue. Everybody is observing the mm -hmm. holiday mm -hmm. religiously, which means you don't use your cell phones. Yeah. And so it was right, incredibly right. difficult mm -hmm. for the army to get through to people for the emergency call out. Mm -hmm. And and Simchat Torah, it's a celebration of completing the yearly cycle of the reading of the five books of Moses and starting it over again with Genesis. Mm. And like one of the great honors is to be called up for the reading mm. beginning Genesis. And, and this is all in the morning as the proverbial, you know what, is, is hitting the fan and people are starting to find out what's happening. And there's like this one guy who's supposed to get that honor. And then everybody realizes Wait a second. He just went down south to the front because it's like this a crazy war going on, you know, because you just get in your car and you drive down there. You know, you drive to the war. Right. And then they say, well, well OK, his brother in law will do it. And so where's his brother? in law? Oh, his, his, his brother in law just drove off to the front. And then finally, it was a friend of mine who's who's my age, like sixty-five years old, or too old to you know to do army service. So finally, he could do it. He was sort of surprised at the last minute. He got this uh, you know this great honor. They finally you know they had to go to the the old people, <laughs> someone who they were sure uh, wasn't going to end up down at the front. So it was it was just unbelievable. I mean, like another scene, if I can. I was in a scene. I felt like I was in a movie. Because my, you know, my son is married. That the son who is who is who is with us on that holiday, uh, he's married. He has four kids, and he was by us with his family for the holiday. And you know, in Jewish law, you're not supposed to drive on the Sabbath or on or on holidays. And uh, then we finally they managed to get through to him that he has to get down there, and um, his son. So I so I I go home with him, and we're getting stuff together. And his and his son, who's like in I don't know in, in fourth grade, I think, um, my grandson sees his father is getting into the car on a holiday when you're not allowed to drive, and he says uh, to me like. What's going on? My father is 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 you know like transgressing the 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 laws of the holiday. So I said pikuach uh, nefesh. That means it's like uh, lives are in danger, and you know basically almost all laws are overridden by that. And so he and so he all oh, this is in Hebrew, and he says, "I know what pikuach nefesh. What endangerment of lives is there? What well, there's a war." And your father, you know, is actually, he's in, uh, you know, special forces. And uh, so they're the first guys down there. And mm -hmm. it was just, I felt like I was in some kind of movie or something. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, it's uh, quite bizarre. I mean, I've been through a few bizarre things in, in Israel. <laughs> yeah. Like I was so saying, was like, I... this is certainly up there. 
I I have I don't want to pretend like I even understand stuff that I don't understand. So I I and again remember I hate platitudes. So I, I all to say um, my heart does go out to everybody involved, and I don't I don't yeah, it's like, I don't understand. Yeah, I don't un- like, anyway. Yeah. There there you see that there is there are bad things happening in the world. Sure. Yeah. And it but, is an admixture. Of, which. Uh, at all kinds of levels. Which brings our conversation full circle here. <laughs> I would like to say one thing in the end. Yeah, please to do. Cover, to cover my rear end. And I said okay. it, I think, in the introduction to the book. Uh-huh. People should understand that, like, what I'm saying, it's not like this is some, everything I'm saying is some kind of mainstream Jewish Orthodox view. Sure. But on the other hand, as I mentioned in the introduction to the book, that's because in theological and exegetical issues, there isn't much in the way of, of, you know, a doctrine, a particular doctrine, a specific, you know, wow, you better know, like, I, I know that my Christian friends are very concerned about Trinitarian theology and stuff like that, you know, getting the details right. And Judaism isn't like that. Judaism, as I write in the introduction, it's you're having a relationship with God. You know, there's certain things you're supposed to do. You're having a relationship with God. But you don't have to have the correct theory of God to have that relationship. Like I'm I'm married like uh, 41 and a half years, if I recall correctly. I do not have a perfect theory of love. I do not have a perfect theory of my wife's psychology. And I certainly have not solved the problems of free will in human beings. I don't have a good metaphysics of it. But I have a relationship. And there's sometimes that, you know, it helps. Theory can help. My wife hates when I do it because, you know, as an (laughs) academic, you know, I also read a lot of psychology. Oh, God, he's bringing in, he read some study and he's bringing it into our life, you know, some psychological (laughs) theory. You know, it can help, but certainly you can have a relationship without having a perfect understanding of the metaphysics mm. of what's going on. And so the same thing with God. And, and you know, and there's an idea in Judaism that everybody has their portion of Torah, you know. I have a certain background. I have certain things that I can bring to the table and draw out certain aspects of Torah. And there are other people who know a lot more about all kinds of things than I do and, you know, are probably smarter and they have more of their brain cells are still working and they get other other things. And, you know, it's like a, it's a community project hmm. of the Jewish people to be hmm. involved with with Torah. Hmm. So that's that's how people should take what I say. They should say, what? That's what Jews believe. It could be no one else believes some of the stuff I said. But all right. Well, I think everybody will appreciate um, <laughs> your humility and modesty and how you talk about things and write about things. So I really appreciate that. And I'm a big believer in dialogue. Like, um, I think I think conversations is where we can discover truth and where we can discover, you know, the facts about reality. And and um, and even this is this has just been a really blessing to me. I just want you to know, thank you for being on the show. And um, I look forward to having you back. And I just want to sure. say thank you for your time. Yeah, I really, I really like speaking with Christian scholars because often they notice things that are, especially in exegesis, that are important to them. Like, for instance, I'll just mention, well, I keep on forgetting his name, Philip Sumter. Yeah, yeah. Like when I was talking to him about the Noah business in the book, and I didn't do much with the sacrifice that Noah brings. Mm. And Philip Sumter says, Oh, you know, when we Christians read that, ooh, that's Noah bringing that sacrifice. That's a big deal for us, you know? And I was thinking, whoa, yeah, wow. I really skipped over that. And then, like, it becomes like a whole whole phase of my interpretation of the story was Mm -hmm. leading up to that, leading up to that sacrifice. And I'm not saying that a Jewish exegete wouldn't say something about the sacrifice and wouldn't have noticed it, but I didn't notice it until I had a conversation with a, a Christian Bible uh, scholar and theologian who, for mm-hmm. him, was a very central part of the story. 
Sure. It, and, and my whole audience would agree with me when I say this is that it works the other way around too. I, I, I love it when I get to talk with like, say, Jewish scholars, right, for example, and because you will notice things that I will not notice. And and that's a benefit to me to have this dialogue to hear um, the things that you see that I just haven't seen yet. I'll, I'll just leave you with one last thing. I know we're going along a long time, but uh, I know this is something that my Christian friends appreciate, you know, because, you know, I I speak Hebrew and I'm a sort of a native reader of, of Hebrew Bible. So the things that we notice. So in the story of, of Saul and the Amalekites, and, uh, and then he spares, he spares the animals. And then Samuel comes and complains to him, and he says, what is the sound of the sheep in my ears? In Hebrew, what there is meh. And with the cantillation marks that, 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 uh, that show you how it should be recited in synagogue, and I actually had to do this section, it's u meh. What? No, man. <laughs> oh, is so this cool. sound of sheep? That's so cool. So I even did that in the synagogue, by the way, because yeah. I'm that kind of guy. I was reading it. <laughs> did it instead of just saying, meh, I did meh, <laughs> because it's obvious. It's onomatopoeia, you know? It, mm. it didn't happen by accident. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. That's so cool. That's great. Well, everybody, the book is called Human Divine Interactions in the Hebrew Scriptures, Covenants and Cross Purposes. And I'll put a link in the description below of this episode so that everybody can snag up a copy. Please do that. Definitely get the book, read through it and uh, enjoy it. Um, Beryl, thank you once again for being on the show. I've been blessed so much by this conversation and um, I hope to have you back on the show again. Thanks. I found it very interesting. And maybe you can also put, uh, I don't have it there, uh, Charlotte Katzoff's book. Okay. Yeah. I'll find that on Amazon or something. In, in there, because that. really, I think I would say it would be a very good book for philosophers who want to get Bible people interested in philosophy and mm -hmm. Bible people who want to get philosophers interested in Bible. Now, spell her give this presence to each other. Because she really goes hard and heavy into the analytic philosophy. Okay. But dealing with biblical narrative. So tell me her last name again. Katzoff. That's K-A-T. I keep on looking at my book. K-A-T-Z-O-F-F. -F. Charlotte Katzoff, Human Agency and Divine Will, the book of Genesis. Human Agency. I'm typing this in as we... Human Agency and Divine Will. Divine Will, the book of Genesis. Okay book of genesis sweet i will do that i will put that in the show notes below too um and uh maybe you should interview her you should get in touch with her Look yeah her up yeah thanks so find her email send it to you yeah please do actually if you would do that yeah find that and send yeah. it to me and i'll have to check out her book and i'm interested in i'm interested in genesis and uh, the divine will and human agency. It's like the perfect book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really good well hey man uh, thanks so much blessings to you thanks for being so on the show long. thanks Bye-bye. That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.